This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Today I'm speaking with Rob Grunewald, an economist with the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Grunewald conducts research on community development and regional economic issues. He co-authored a report called Early Childhood Development, Economic Development with a High Public Return in 2003. Since then, he has continued his work supporting and advocating for investments in early childhood programs and services. Rob, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Uh, first, a bit of background on Federal Reserve Banks in the U.S. There are 12, and the Minneapolis Federal Reserve serves a large rural area, uh, Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, and Michigan, the Dakotas, and Montana. So I'm curious about what community development at the Federal Reserve looks like for this part of the country. Well, you know, to speak about community development within the Federal Reserve, um, the Fed became you know, particularly interested in the connection between financial institutions and communities, especially low to moderate income communities, after the passage of the Community Reinvestment Act in 1977. So while this is a smaller function within the Federal Reserve compared to what other things the Fed does, such as issuing currency and conducting monetary policy and bank regulation, a community development has been a way for the Fed to look at a number of key issues that can affect communities and particularly how they relate to uh, banks' obligations under the Community Reinvestment Act. In our northern tier of states in the Ninth District, we have an assortment of issues. You know, some are around our Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul. So we are looking at urban issues, housing, uh, workforce development. Um, but as you noted, we have a large area of rural uh, parts of the country that we're, we're focused on issues affecting those communities, in particular, Native American communities. In this region, for the past few decades, uh, the Minneapolis Fed has been working with the communities that are self-governing of Native Americans here in the Fed and just four years ago created the Center for Indian Country Development, uh, which now supports uh, that topic uh, throughout the entire Federal Reserve System. Are other Federal Reserves looking at community development in the same way? Is there a trend across the country or, you know, and what might that look like in the Western U.S.? I know the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco serves many states, Western U.S., including Oregon. So what does that look like? So the, the San Francisco Fed is the largest uh, Federal Reserve District uh, with branch offices in Seattle and Portland, Los Angeles, and also in Salt Lake City. So covering that entire region, there's a, a lot of diversity of issues. And the, the San Francisco Fed has been touching on a number of issues that affect urban areas, but they've also done some work in rural areas as well. They started one project called Healthy Communities a number of years ago, uh, which looks at the connection between public health issues and also uh, communities, whether they be urban or rural, and particularly the community development organizations in those communities. Uh, recently, I've partnered with uh, the San Francisco Fed to host some sessions at uh, a national uh, regulatory convening around community reinvestment that will be held in Denver in March. And we're highlighting the connection between early childhood development and reinvestment opportunities in the CRA at, at that meeting. You touched on this a bit, but I wanted to ask you if you could go into a little bit more detail about why early childhood is important to the Federal Reserve and how it became a priority. 
So as I mentioned, the community development function has been looking at a number of, of different issues. And one of them is workforce development. And workforce development within our community development function you know, plays an important role because as we look at what's called the Federal Reserve's dual mandate around monetary policy, includes on one hand to promote stable prices, um, but on the other is to promote maximum employment. And monetary policy is a blunt instrument. And we recognize that just moving uh, the short-term interest rate and the other area ways that the Federal Reserve conducts monetary policy is not going to address a lot of different workforce and employment issues that affects the, the entire country. That is, the economy is going to be strongest when there is a broad access to employment uh, for all different communities and backgrounds. And so early childhood development had, within that context has an important area of research uh, for the Fed because that's where really workforce development starts. This became an important part of our work at the Minneapolis Fed 16 years ago. And at that time, our director of research, Art Rolnick, and myself uh, were able to make connections between uh, this neuroscience of and also developmental psychology and the importance of the early years in child development and how the environments in those early years in terms of context can affect a child's success in school and ultimately their success in the workforce. There's a lot of momentum if you look back into the early 2000s. I know the early childhood development report came out in 2003, but across the country, there was momentum building around early childhood and making the connections between what actually is happening. As you mentioned, brain development, what's happening with a child and how crucial those years are uh, for young children. And then also connecting that to the return on investment for moving public dollars into early childhood programs and services. So, Talk about how you articulate the return on investment for public dollars. Well, it really does bring together that uh, conversation of research around neuroscience and child development and the sensitivity of those early years and the impact that making sure children are prepared to succeed in school has on not only the children and their families, but to society as a whole. And the way we made those connections in our report in 2003 was to be able to look back at a series of studies that were able to show the impact of providing a high quality early care and education experience for children uh, that come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. And one of those studies was conducted in Michigan called the Perry Preschool Study. I hear children from disadvantaged backgrounds had uh, two years of preschool, and the teachers also had some home visits in that program. And the, the research was able to follow the children who attended preschool versus those that were in a randomized control group and have been able to survey both sets of children now who are adults up into the mid-50s. And so a research project like this allows us to look over time at the impact of an early intervention on future costs. So for example, the children in this study needed less special education in the school system, which is a more expensive remedial education effort. So with reduced need for special education, 
the this preschool program was able to reduce costs to the K through 12 system. Research also shows that once children reached adult age, they're more likely to earn more money in the workforce, which resulted in more money for those children as adults, but also increased tax revenue to the public. And also crime rates were reduced. So we could see uh, savings to the public in the form of reduced costs to incarceration, court costs, and the need for police protection. So all the, these downstream uh, cost savings and increases in tax revenue uh, were able to put monetary values to. And when we add up all of the, the monetary benefits relative to the cost of the program, it returned as much as $16 for every dollar returned. Hmm. Uh, we also looked at the annual rate of return over the lifetime of these benefits. And, and we estimate that like, that return could be as high as 18% uh, total to society and to the non-participants or to the public at 16%. Since 2003, would you say is there a better or broader understanding of the return on investment? Is this something that more people understand more clearly today? I believe so. And as I've been able to participate in this discussion, I think the combination of the neuroscience that is getting you know more traction and, and is being able to in front of policymakers and the general public. I think parents are coming about uh, parenting their children with more education about child developments as well. Uh, in terms of the return on investment, uh, this research has been also supported by work by James Heckman, who's a Nobel laureate economist at the University of Chicago. And he has uh, analyzed not only the Perry preschool uh, program, which which note, he, he makes a couple more conservative assumptions about the data there, but still finds a very high return, 10% annually. He's also looked at some of the other long-term studies uh, that we reviewed over time and has also been able to show this strong return on investment. And I think the, the combination of these two aspects together, child development and economics, have been able to make a strong case to business people and to policymakers. I want to touch on workforce a bit. If you could talk about the connection between an educated and and or well-trained workforce and a stronger economy, what that looks like. What we see in economic research is that productivity of an economy depends on the skills and education of the workforce. And we can look just within the United States and we see those states that have a higher population with a college degree also produce higher income for their families. They have higher uh, total output per person as well. And it's a trend that we see around the globe. That is the, the increased need for skills and education is compensated by more income because uh, these individuals are more productive in the economy. So the skills of a workforce helps to drive economic growth. So the return on investment calculations that we do, they're often looking at the impact of investing in young children and some of the cost savings that we see uh, to public budgets and some increase in tax revenue. We can also look at the same investment in terms of how does that impact the productivity of the workforce 15, 20, 25 years down the road. And macroeconomists have also been able to make some of those connections. That is, if we 
make these early investments in human capital, we can actually increase the productivity of the labor force 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And there's also needs within the early childhood workforce as well. Could you talk about what workforce needs are needed in order to actually have strong early childhood programs and services that are meeting the needs of children and families? Well, the success of an early learning program, so just focusing on you know, early care and education that might happen within a, a preschool setting or at a Head Start center or at a child care center, even a, a family, a home-based child care program, uh, that the interaction between those teachers and the children is what helps to promote development. We also see that that can be supported by a curriculum that helps to uh, be able to create a context and a plan for the day and for the year, as it were, uh, for those teachers. Those skills are very important. And as a profession, um, this is an area in our economy where the professionals in this field are paid very low. So a, a child care assistant aide who's working in the classroom in a child care setting uh, could be paying just a little bit above minimum wage. And those that, that oversee classrooms, let's say for preschool age children, uh, those teachers, while they're working hard and managing that classroom, are paid much less than teachers in our public school systems. So I think first is to be able to support that profession, all those who are working with children in those settings, uh, also with the training, uh, whether that is through uh, community colleges or universities, colleges to help support their, their skills and education, and also layering on coaching to support what happens between teachers and children. There's work that's being done on this issue. The National Association for the Education of Young Children is walking through a process called Power to the Profession to help to articulate what those skills and then standards for each of the professionals in this field, and as a way to help elevate the important work uh, that these teachers do, because ultimately, if, if they're able to support children during these first few years, uh, they're bringing tremendous value uh, to society. On a parallel track, I wanted to ask you about some of the emerging research on the childcare system and the effects that you're seeing on workforce participation and productivity. Yeah, it's, you know, what we've talked about so far is the impact of early care and education on child development and, and children, which is so crucial, so important. We also recognize that a well-functioning early care and education system allows parents to enter the workforce and be productive at their jobs when they know that their child care arrangements are safe and secure and reliable. And there's some emerging research um, at the national level and a few states as well that have gone out and asked parents uh, with young children about the impact of childcare problems on their ability to enter the workforce and also their productivity at work. And at one of the a national study that was released by the organization Ready Nation and uh, the researcher is Clive Belfield. And what they did in this study is did a national sample of parents and asked them about the impact of childcare problems for their children under the age of three. 
and they were able to make connections between the responses to questions about whether they had to leave a job or work part-time instead of full-time or had to, or maybe even fired from a job. And they were able to show that they're from an annual basis in a given year, families may be losing $37 billion of income. Uh, businesses are losing $13 billion due to the cost to hire uh, workers and they, they need to do more searching for workers and retrain them. And then also there's some loss to the public governments as well, because there's just less activity producing income. Wow. So these studies, these surveys are showing that the extent to which childcare can be reliable will impact that parent employee's um, productivity. Makes sense. Makes sense. When we think about rolling out, implementing early childhood programs, there's often a discussion about quantity versus quality. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, the quantity question is, as advocates, we want more kids in preschool, in early childhood programs in general. But there also needs to be attention placed on creating quality programs and taking a look at what some of those quality standards might be. So what's your view on that? It, it is very true that we need to match the quality experience and, and pay for it in order for it to be beneficial for children. So uh, first, uh, research has shown that when children are in a low quality uh, childcare experience, that it could actually be hampering development. That is, if, it's, if it is low quality, if there's not the developmentally enriching experiences in that setting that uh, researchers have been able to establish even through biometric measures, that it can be stressful for kids and that it can help it's, instead of supporting their development, it's either neutral, it could be you know, slightly pulling them back in their healthy development. So the quality of these early care and education experiences are important and that we need to, as policymakers, work through that calculus of how many children do we have in programs and then how much do we pay for each child and achieve a quality threshold to make sure that they're not scrimping on quality in order to get more children into the program. So it's really a both and. Um, the field has been working you know, continuously to articulate what is quality and what those costs are. And I think that's still a, an answer that's in development. But I think the more that we've learned about that connection between teachers and children, what those types of skills are and experiences, we're getting a better sense of what those costs are to support a quality program. Could you talk about what the early care and education strategy looks like now in Minnesota? Well, in Minnesota, there's been an effort um, that started back in 2006 and actually started uh, with a paper that Art Rolnick and I wrote about creating a, a scholarship um, program for low-income families so that they could send their children to a high-quality program before they go to kindergarten. Just like we think about investing in scholarships for kids who are going on to college bringing some of that thinking into early care and education. So that was a, a model that was piloted by a group of business leaders in Minnesota. And from that pilot project, which was conducted in St. Paul, 
lessons were learned and brought to the legislature and the governor. And now there's a early learning scholarship fund of $70 million uh, that can be used by parents that have lower income with children ages three and four, and then also children for younger ages that, that achieve uh, risk factors such as homelessness or in foster care. And so it's a program that empowers parents with resources and information about quality programs that they can choose from. And then uh, all the different program types are eligible to receive these funds, whether that is a child care program, a family child care program, a public school, preschool program, or Head Start. They just need to achieve quality thresholds in order to uh, receive these funds that are attached to children. So that is a model that we see um, being looked at and adopted in different ways in other parts of the country. It's a way to use the existing infrastructure to create incentives to increase the quality of the programs there and then also to empower parents. You know, with that said, in Minnesota, there's still a ways to go to reach all children who could benefit uh, from these dollars, but the state has certainly made an increased investment over the last 10 years. I wanted to follow up just on this issue of needs in rural communities. And if you could talk about what some of the needs and issues are that you're seeing for rural communities, specifically in your region, when it comes to expanding early childhood programs and services. In terms of early care and education, uh, rural communities are often cannot support some of the larger childcare centers that we see in more urban areas. It's just the math doesn't pencil out for a program to be offered like that there. And so it tends to rely on smaller programs, particularly family childcare programs uh, that are in homes. And, and wherever there are surveys of childcare access and quality, what we tend to see is that, you know, no matter what state you look at, uh, that in rural areas, there's less access overall and also less access to quality programs. So the challenge here is to be able to network, you know, with those existing programs and also to work at the community level to develop strategies to increase supply. Uh, the advantages of working in rural communities is that people know each other from different organizations. Uh, we can bring uh, members from the early care and education system, from business, you know, from other leaders within the community to be able to develop strategies. You know, it's one strategy uh, that has been developed in Minnesota is to work with a group called First Children's Finance and have professionals out in our more rural areas that can help uh, coordinate with local communities and find ways to increase supply and also bring forward some more innovative ideas on how to increase supply. For example, one idea uh, that's been used now in a few places is to establish family child care, not just in a home, but find a, an actual building that you could have an incubation for a handful of small family child care programs that could be uh, fostered and uh, provide services in a setting like that. There are some great examples of early childhood programs in Native American communities in Minnesota, in your region, culturally specific approaches to early learning. Could you provide an example or two? Absolutely. At the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned the Center for Indian Country Development here at the Minneapolis Fed. I've had a chance to work with them to help connect with communities and find how we could help support their work in, with early childhood issues. 
And what we found is that there's a lot of excitement within communities about uh, language immersion programs uh, that start with very young children. Uh, there's been particularly examples in Hawaii where early, what they call language nests, were started to support uh, language development with young children, early as age two or three, and that by the time they get into school, there might even be an opportunity to continue to learn uh, subjects within their own native language. In the case of Hawaii, now you can actually have a whole curriculum into college, all in Hawaiian. So communities here in North America have been adopting that model as well. And in our part of the country in Minnesota, there's been emerging uh, programs uh, like this. Here, just in our, our Minneapolis area, there is a program that offers an immersion program in Dakota and also another classroom in Ojibwe. And the children there could be as early as age two and they get to work with language and their culture. And what the communities have pointed out is not only does do these early programs uh, help support a child's identity and, and their culture, which is a very important protective factor that helps empower those kids once they go into school, but learning the language itself has been supporting their child development. When these kids uh, leave this particular program here in Minneapolis, they're more likely to go on to kindergarten and be prepared for school. And now they also have an option to go to a, a charter school uh, that can continue their language learning in their native, their native languages. So on, on our website, we've developed some work that talks about language immersion programs to educate policymakers about the importance of these resources and funding that can help support those programs. We've also looked at issues more broadly around how is child assessment appropriately conducted within the context of Native communities to make sure that the goals that they want to achieve with children are shown and supported through assessments, not just the standard assessments that we see in majority culture, and that there are ways to create um, additional networking uh, between communities around best practice, especially developing some of that Native American language immersion curriculum. I want you just to think broadly about the progress that's been made since 2003 around early learning, early childhood care, early childhood education, and what we're saying now more commonly, early care and education. But do you feel like systems and states are responding? Do you feel like voters are responding? What's your overall take on the progress we've made since then? So there certainly has been progress. Um, states have been bringing more resources to the table, particularly around preschool opportunities for four-year-olds. At the national level, we saw two years ago, Congress passing a large increase in resources to help pay for childcare subsidies that are administered by states and also an increased contribution to Head Start programs, which is federally funded. Um, with that said, we can still look at waiting lists for these programs and that they are still long. And we have a ways to go to fully achieve that high return uh, with an early care and education. I'll also say that there are just other, I mean, while we've been talking about early care and education, within child development, there are other areas of focus that could also uh, show this high return uh, that, that could benefit from more attention and more resources 
uh, such as home visiting, uh, where home visitors work with expectant mothers and you know, mothers with young children. Also, uh, ways that mental health and other family support services can connect with the child welfare system so that families that are truly at high risk uh, can receive the resources they need to help support the development of their young children or children who are in foster care so that they are receiving important services. So while progress has been made, there still is a ways to go. Makes sense. Makes sense. We're certainly seeing the same thing out here in Oregon. So this is my last question for you, and it's the new year. You are our first interview of the year. What does 2020 look like for early childhood? What can we expect? What can we look forward to? Well, my hope is that we can continue to look at how we can provide resources to those children who are most in need, uh, whether that's in early care and education or those that are connected with child welfare or those uh, that are benefiting from home visiting services or other health and nutrition programs. And then I also expect that we'll be continuing conversation around the professionalization of the early care and education field. There's been good work done in this area, but to elevate the teachers and the assistants that are working in these programs so that they are having the skills and the education they need to do their work, but also uh, higher compensation. Rob, it's been great to have you on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Thanks for the conversation. Really appreciate the conversation. Best wishes with your work in Oregon. Thanks so much. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks so much for tuning in for our first segment of 2020. We'll see you next time.